Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Football Insiders podcast show, The Inside Track. I'm your host, Lewis Pears, and with me today, I'm joined by former Everton and Aston Villa CEO Keith Wyness for part one. We'll be discussing Everton's ongoing points deduction appeal, the concerns around 777 partners, and the thoughts for the rest of the season amongst the fans. We'll also be discussing Manchester City's ongoing legal case and the repercussions, Nottingham Forest's likely points deduction, Manchester United's ongoing sporting director search, and exclusive information on Michael Edwards. For part two, I'm joined by former England and Tottenham goalkeeper Paul Robinson, and our special guest, host and co-founder of West Ham Fan TV, Nicky Hawkins. We'll be getting all the news from Nicky on their current situation. What's the general feeling around David Moyes? Who's his likely successor? And concerns around Tim Stuyton leaving? And to wrap up, we'll be discussing Liverpool's ongoing managerial search. Before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you hit that follow button on your preferred podcast platform. And if you like what you hear, make sure to give our pod a top review and rating. This helps us to produce the very best possible show. Let's get straight into the episode. Okay, Keith, to start with, we've got to talk about Everton. Now, it sounds like potentially, and hopefully for your sake and all Evertonians' sake as well, that you'll be hearing from the appeal from the 10-point deduction this week. What are your thoughts? Likely to regain any points? Where do you stand now? Well, I think like everybody, as you say, we've been on tenterhooks waiting to find out the uh, the outcome. It's really, it's up in the air. Nobody knows. There's rumours of every possible option going on right now. I've always felt that there would be some sort of reduction in points, hopefully as far as being suspended and then a fine put in place. But it can go all the way through the the whole range. So no expectation as to what to uh, to do. And given the mess that the Premier League, I think, have made of this whole situation, uh, I've got no real faith that they're going to come to the right conclusion. But hopefully uh, the, the KC that Everton have employed has put this robust case in and we're going to get the right outcome that I'd be looking for. You said, Keith, last time when we spoke that Everton will be either receiving a bouquet of flowers or thorns on Valentine's Day, depending on what this outcome was, and actually received neither. Were you quite surprised by that? I think most most Evertonians seem to be quite set that the announcement was going to be last week. And of course, we're now a week on and there still is no news. Look, I'm fully aware of the complexity of an appeal of this nature and having to, you know, understand the KC's arguments to think about them, to then write the opinion. I know those things take time in the legal world. Uh, I've been through the similar sort of process a few times, so I understand it. But uh, I think given the public scrutiny on this, given the impact it has on the mentality of teams that are in the table right now in and around Everton, on the players, on the staff, I think it's incumbent on the Premier League to have done more to expedite this. And so I'm disappointed it has even gone into this week. I mean, you've, you've mentioned that, Keith, there, of course, currently as it stands level, on level points with Luton, 17th in the table. Could that extra three or four points, actually, if Everton are to regain those, could that be the difference between relegation and survival this season? Yeah, obviously, fairly you know, fairly obviously it can do. Um, I think those points are going to be uh, gold dust. It, there is a bit of a resurgence in Luton's form and uh, Everton, you know, have um, not been really getting that many points in the last few games. So, yes, it's it's going to, uh, it's coming down towards Easter time. And then, as we all know, from Easter to uh, the end of the season is a very quick time. So uh, those points, every point right now is, should be a prisoner. Absolutely. I mean, Daesh complained that Everton have had two hearings before the Premier League have addressed Manchester City's 115 charges. Now, we can come on to them in just a minute, but do you think those are fair complaints? Can Daesh actually be frustrated at this whole situation? Yeah, I think he, he is, because I say it's becoming much more more draconian than just a points deduction. It's the impact of those points and the whole uncertainty around it that is causing ripple effects beyond what would seem to be a simple points deduction. And so it's becoming unfair punishment. And I think that may well be one of the arguments that the, uh, the Casey may have made. I've no idea. But certainly, uh, I believe that... Uh, it has been wrong to deceive, and we, we can all learn from this now that the ripple effects of these sort of things are immense. And it isn't just that one club it affects, it, it affects so many people, their livelihoods, the players, their families, the staff. So I think it, it needs to be re looked at in, from that uh, point of view as well. 
What do you think the, the behind the scene feeling is regarding that, whether it's players or staff, everyone involved? Because, I mean, from a fan's perspective, it's, it's really difficult. If you were still involved at Everton now, what do you think? How would you be encouraging your staff members through this time? Well, you'd be trying to give everybody, you know, reassurance that you're doing all you possibly can uh, to support them and to go forward. But there's no doubt it's human nature to worry when there is a vacuum that, you know, misinformation can go into that vacuum. And that's the biggest problem you've got. It's difficult to communicate to the fans because nobody has any concrete information to communicate. And whatever you say, you're basically going to be in trouble regardless. And so if you say that you're hopeful of a, a points deduction, one doesn't happen, then you're in trouble. If one does happen, then you haven't got it right either. So it's it's difficult in this case. Normally, communication to the fan base and to the staff is crucial. Uh, but in this case, as I say, it's very, very hard to, uh, to be able to communicate in such an intangible area. Genius, a lose-lose then. Is that effectively what you're saying? There, there, is no, there is no way to win in this scenario. Well, the way to win... Sorry, there is, there is no win in this scenario, but the, obviously we hope the win will be the, 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 the reduction in, in the points penalty. Uh, but I think it, it creates such a stressful situation. And as I, I mentioned before, players will be thinking now about whether they're going to be wanting a move towards the end of the season or not. All those things come into play. So you may end up losing players over this sort of thing, uh, which was not the point of the points deduction. And certainly under the, the you know the PSR rules, it seems to be becoming a draconian penalty. And so there may well be another round of legal action from the club if this uh, if this isn't a satisfactory outcome from the appeal. Doesn't that concern you, though, that we're now already in mid-February rolling on towards March? You still haven't really fully dealt with this. As you've said, there could be further legal actions taken. And on top of that, you've got the second case to come. Surely that must be really concerning with the, you know, the last sort of 12 games to go or so. It is, and it's it's the whole thing has become unsettling for, because of its longevity, because of the the way it's been handled in terms of uh, so many un you know so many loose ends not tied up properly in terms of the legal side. So it's it's been very difficult, and again, it's a can of worms that the Premier League have opened without really knowing how to put a lid on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we talk about something else as well that's going on with Everton, of course, the takeover with 777 partners. Now, sounds like potentially that could set to be approved by the end of February, but rejected or accepted kind of is or approved is, remains to be seen. If it is rejected, Keith, what are your thoughts then? Where do Everton go from there, especially as well with all that we've just discussed with the points? It is very difficult. I mean, there was some other sort of not very uh, favourable news about 777 came out yesterday about their reinsurance company and their credit ratings. Uh, certainly, I don't think that's been helpful to them. And I don't know what the Premier League's view on that will be. Um, so, again, we're stuck in terms of timing. Uh, everybody saw the Radcliffe um, you know, agreement at Man United, I think, got approved in 51 days. I believe we're almost at 180 days now in terms of the 777 situation. So, again, it's, uh, it's difficult. Obviously, there is due process. I understand that. But again, are the correct resources being applied from the Premier League to do things in a timely fashion? It, you know, it doesn't seem to be. Uh, I did say before that they've announced they they brought in additional legal resource uh, to do, you know, to try and handle the uh, the Forest and the Everton second charges. Why hasn't that been done before in terms of not only the seven 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 approval, the legal side? The Premier League's got enough money to bring in much more resources than it, than it has at present. So I don't know why these sort of things can't be handled more expeditiously, given the impact they have on the competition and its integrity. Is there any concern, though, Keith, to kind of flip it around in a different way, that because it's taken so long for 777 to get approval, are you concerned at all that they actually might not be the right candidates to own Everton? Well, I think there's a big concern, obviously. And you, you, you obviously come to the conclusion the longer it goes on, the bigger the problems may be and that the proper information has not been given. So yes, of course, absolutely, that there's deep concerns, I think, that uh, why this hasn't gone through. I've seen many takeover bids with clubs, et cetera, when they have, you know, when things have gone on, they haven't been able to answer the questions. And the longer it goes on, certainly the worse it appears to be. So I think there is a, a problem there. And then, you know, the Premier League has got a double-edged sword because it's also now contributed with its length of taking its with the time it's taken on the length of this decision about 777 it's put everton into another difficult situation uh, because the club has not been able 
to then be you know to, to be able to engage with any other potential buyers while it's under sort of i presume exclusivity agreements with 777 so that's giving everton another headache due to the uh, the timing of the premier league's actions I mean, it really isn't very ideal if, from what you've basically just said. It's all, it's all quite complicated at the moment. I mean, 7-7 partners, by the sounds as well, are going to recall £200 million worth of loans if the takeover is rejected. What does that then mean for the club going forwards? Well, it's hard to know without understanding the detail of how those loans are actually given to the club, if they're convertible into equity, and whether they could actually have to be repaid if a new owner came in. I don't know enough detail to be able to comment on how it could really impact somebody. But nevertheless, what you can presume is that the amount uh, of debt is, is increasing and that isn't good. Uh, and certainly any new owner would have to come in and look at probably repaying some of the creditors at present and uh, reducing that debt load and getting the club back onto a stable footing. And that's where you'd hope that then the new stadium and the revenues coming in from that could fix the picture, but it's getting very close to the edge about those sort of situations. I do believe there are other people in the wings, and I hope they are. And uh, I think that Everton is still a great prize, particularly with the new stadium, and I think it can go forward. But uh, we're getting close to the edge now. Yeah, and it sounds like it's it's sort of getting very, I mean, it's, it's getting very close now to its conclusion, really, across all fronts. So the other sort of key question, Keith, I mean, of course, you've mentioned in previous episodes on this podcast, so please go and listen back if you haven't already, is that the stadium effectively could be the, um, th that could be the shining light at the end of the tunnel for Evertonians. That's what, you know, is there to look forward to. But actually, with these loans to repay in the stadium bills, is, is that concerning also going into the summer and further forwards for the club? Well, the good news on that sort of side of it is that the, the fixed price contracts that were put in place uh, meant that the uh, the actual cost of the stadium when it's finished is going to be fairly reasonable compared to what it would cost today. Uh, I think if you were to look at a project like this today, you'd be looking at over about £1.2 billion to try and build a stadium like this, whereas I understand we're well under 800 near a 750 in terms of the cost of the present stadium. So already you've got an asset with greater value. Uh, so that is one great, you know, one great uh, plus and a positive. If we were stuck with Goodison in these debts, that'd be a completely different picture. Yeah, no, absolutely. So actually, would you say in that sense then, that although everything going on at the club isn't ideal, that actually the stadium is, is effectively, you could argue, sort of perfect timing, a blessing in disguise? Yes, it is. I mean, as much as it's caused the problem on the round of 10 points because of the Premier League's interpretation about the interest payments, it's uh, it could well end up being the solution and the savior at the same time. Okay. All right, Keith, on to Manchester City. Now, I don't want to frustrate you by any means, but of course, we're still yet to hear about Man City. What are your thoughts? Because, I mean, it must just be so infuriating. Well, I've had a number of Man City fans be in contact since our last chat about this. Uh, they they think that it's, it's uh, wrong to even bring Man City into the same argument because Man City have denied all their charges, whereas Everton have actually admitted to them. Uh, I have some sympathy with that point, but not a lot because those sort of admissions of guilt tend to come closer to the, the actual trial themselves. And so that's more of a negotiating tactic in terms of the, the situation. It's obviously complex, the 115 charges we've said many times, but I still believe they come into three or four categories and so, as such, a lot of them are uh, sub, you know, sort of sub points of, of of similar charges. So I don't know why. Again, it's it's taking so long. It is frustrating. I mean, Man City beat Everton just the other weekend when we we talked. And you know, is there a case now if Man City are proven guilty and Everton are found uh, to be innocent, does Everton have a chance to sue Man City and get those points back? If this is where this whole stupid merry-go-round that the Premier League have opened up could end uh you know it could be a ridiculous situation like that and uh who knows where it's going to end but this this whole legal merry-go-round is something that i'm i'm definitely against and it should have been handled in a better way I mean, one other thing, Keith, to mention that fans have been slightly concerned about, of course, City added to their multi-group project, Istanbul Bashakir, to to their to their corporation, if you'd like to call them that. Should multi-club ownership be allowed? What are your thoughts? And and actually, are you concerned that this could they could, as as a group, just keep growing and growing? Yeah, look, I've got no real problem with multi-club ownership. Uh, I think it uh, it can help grow the game in in, in certain ways. 
Uh, I'm not uh, negative towards it. I think you know we've got to make sure the rules are strengthened. I know that there's a case here if Girona won the uh, the La Liga this year, which is still a remote but still a real possibility. Then Man City could be denied Champions League you know uh, uh, participation, which would be bizarre. But that's just the penalties of being part of a multi-club group. Uh, provided those rules that of clubs playing in the same competitions uh, cannot play against each other, then I've got real no problem with it. The idea of having clubs in the A League in Australia, one in South America, uh, one in you know, I've got no problem with that. I think the global aspect of that will certainly help. And um, you know, it's 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 good to see that experience, knowledge, and a scouting network and a talent network. Passing on best practice, I think, is good. And so, overall, multi-club situations don't really worry me too much. Does it concern you, though, actually, that effectively owners at that point, though, let's say, take that hypothetically, both Girona and Manchester City get Champions League football. Doesn't it concern you that actually they might have to pick one over the other to play competitive football in Europe? Or actually, they have to go to the governing bodies and try and argue a case of both? What, what do you make of that? Well, no, I, th I think the rules are fairly clear um, that Man City would have to go into the uh, Europa Conference. Um, look, it depends on the on the positions they finish and the coefficient. I, I've been reading a lot about the actual positions uh, and what could happen. There are many different permutations, but it is definitely a real possibility that Girona could be the Champions League um, preferred candidate from the City Football Group, um, which would be quite bizarre, but um, that, that's the rules as they stand. We've seen it with the Red Bull case before, where they managed to get around the uh, the ownership situation and let both participate. I don't think City would be able to go around that that route just now um, at such a late date. Um, so this is really all about UEFA to make a stand on clubs playing in the same competitions, and that's where multi-club groups have got to be careful about who they pick. I mean, some of these uh, multi, you know some of these multi-club groups want to buy a club in the Championship in the UK. And they have a say a League One club in France. All of a sudden, that Championship club gets promoted. They get into the Conference League, Europa Conference League, and so does the League One club. And it becomes an unintended consequence of success. But that's exactly the sort of consequence that we've got to be able to to make sure happens, and that uh, we guard against clubs under the same ownership playing each other. Yeah, and I think I think that's exactly it. And again, remains to be seen what happens with, say, Girona and Manchester City. If we wrap up, Keith, with City, of course, there was some more news. They've actually threatened to take legal action against the Premier League as a vote was passed to ban sponsorship deals with companies that have links to their ownership. Do you think the Premier League could overturn that? What, what did you make of that scenario? Well, I know it's a threat uh, because the vote was very close and there was abstentions and the, so there's clubs that are still floating on their opinion on this. Um it's there's obviously no legal action to overturn yet, but still, ooh, you know, every understands what the, the point of view is that, like with Newcastle, if suddenly the Saudis depend, you know, can spend as much as they want to, then it does destabilize the actual playing field to a degree. I'm still of the opinion that I'm not too concerned about those sort of things happening because it's still 11 versus 11. We've all seen where clubs on a much smaller budget, like Luton, have managed to you know frustrate teams with you know a billion pound wage bills and all the rest of it. So let's you know let's just try and keep perspective on this. Um, let's just see that we can you know that football can be played and be competitive, provided there are reasonable resources, and that the uh, the actual sponsorship money that comes in isn't the actual. I know it's, I know it's a big factor behind the, a big correlation between success and money, but it isn't the be-all and end-all. So let's just try and keep some perspective around the uh, the way that we, we, we handle these financial inflows into football because they can also help. In what ways What ways do you think they help then? Well, certainly, I mean, you've, you've seen some of the things that Man City have been able to do, which are very positive in terms of the facilities they've built in, in that part of Manchester. Uh, they've been able to build the city group internationally throughout the uh, the world and add great skills and great you know knowledge and best practice in many key areas. So that's all come from the money they've had to spend. So there are some positives. You've just got to be careful that we we do guard against some type of imbalance that's caused by that. 
but there is no harm in trying to uh, improve the structure, the facilities, and the uh, the whole pyramid of clubs within a, within a group. Absolutely. If we move on to Nottingham Forest, Keith. Now there were some reports that Premier League clubs expect them to get a points deduction, very likely by by most. Um, if that is the case, do you think actually their whole case that has been going on is actually more serious than Everton's? Given, of course, as we've discussed prior, previously, um, Everton, of course, is is down really to the stadium. Well, again, from what I've read in the media, I, I have no inside knowledge of Forrest's uh, breach in this case. It seems to be around player spending. But again, I would say it's such a minor breach in terms of, you know, it's hardly buying players that are destabilising the whole Premier League. <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's a couple of players maybe. And uh, I just don't, you know, Forrest are supposed to be competing in the Premier League against clubs like City, as we just discussed. So there's got to be some common sense. And that's where these rules are not built on common sense, because when it comes to the practice of implementing them, we're finding clubs like Forest being penalised for a breach like this. I know it's easy for me to say that, and people can argue that look, if you're one pound over, then it's guilty. I understand that. But common sense should say, look, really, is it that bad a breach? Did it really cause them to, to win so much? So it's a difficult one because I can see both sides of the argument. But with Forrest, I have sympathy that um, that they're being called into uh, question for all they're trying to do is improve their squad, you know, try and safeguard their investment and their place in the Premier League. They're not being egregious with the spending. I know they bought a lot of players, but hey, that's, that some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Uh, all they're doing is having a very fair shot at trying to stay in the Premier League and uh, I think that's good for competition and I think it's been great for the media and the the, the whole story around the Premier League that Forrest have, have given it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, really one that would want to penalise them just now. No, and if you don't want to penalise them, actually, I guess the, the question is then, do you think, I mean, two questions, do you think they are going to get a points deduction? Actually, if you were in charge, what would you be doing? Would you give them a sanction, a fine? What What would be the reasonable charge? I think you'd be looking at either a fine or some sort of transfer window uh, suspension, uh, I think, are the ways to go with this. Um, and then I'd be looking very quickly to see if we can change these FFP rules and uh, you know get them moving into a, a fairer, fairer way for everybody concerned. I mean, they're currently four points above the drop zone. They beat West Ham on the weekend, previously just gone. And they could be turning their form around, but they do have a really difficult run of games. Do you actually think that if they are to receive a significant points deduction, that actually could really, I mean, that could be the final blow that relegates them? Well, of course, it's possible. Um, you know, it's it's the mindset, again, as I say, it's the ripples and the effects that, that go through a squad and with a manager and the, and the fans. It creates a, a downward spiral of thought if they lose a couple of games and then the penalty kicks in. It's it's just such a, a draconian measure, as I said earlier, and it goes way beyond, I think, what it's intended for. And do you think this case, Everton's, Manchester City's actually, will these all be a turning point for financial regulations in the world of football, in England specifically? I think so. I think it really has shown that there has been such a, an outcry about this. I think most of football recognise that the Everton penalty has been uh, pretty pretty draconian. I keep using the word, but that's what it is. I mean, if they they're, they're being if we just look at this, I mean, we're being given ten points because of supposedly financial uh, irregularities around interest payments being either counted or not against a, a new stadium build. Now, if we'd actually got into administration and said, okay, you know, the loans are too much, we'd only have got nine points. So, you know. Would the Premier League rather have us build a new stadium, which is going to be an asset for the Premier League? Uh, for It's going to be one of the stadiums for the Euros. Uh, you know, Or should we just go bust and then say, right, we'll take nine points rather than ten? I mean, it just logic does not come into it. And that's where I'm still struggling with the way it's all being handled. Uh, what do you think for Forrest? The, I mean, we spoke about Everton and the long-term consequences, but if, if Forrest are to go down, of course, as we've kind of mentioned, that Everton have the stadium to look forward to, that really could be the shining light at the end of the tunnel. What would you say to Forrest fans that are going through a very similar feeling to Evertonians as well? Well, hopefully that they get the same sort of feeling that the Evertonians have had and want to really fight hard against this. You've got to regroup your troops and you've got to try and, you know, get everybody together in adversity and fight against it in that way. And you've got to go with a victim mentality and show the uh, the rest of the, the, the Premier League that you're going to fight for it. Uh, that's all you can do is try and rally everybody around the sort of cause of injustice. 
And uh, I hope Forrest do that. Do you think they will get a 10-point deduction? If you had to call it early, what are your thoughts? No, I don't think it'll be 10 points. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know the scale of it, but of their actual transgression. But for, I, I just don't know. But I would guess it'll be less than that. And I think the Premier League are also going to be very, very wary of the outcry that's happened after the Everton situation. So I think that, you know, there's now some almost precedent and particularly the Everton appeal result will also uh, create some sort of precedent. So we're still in this whole evolving situation around these cases and we're almost making case law in a legal sense. And so those will have bearings on those next uh, round of, of charges as we go forward. Yeah, and I think you're right. So again, remains to be seen how Forest case plays out. If we look at Liverpool and Manchester United, Keith, specifically though, Manchester United and Dan Ashworth, that whole saga going on looks like £20 million compensation if he does move to Manchester United from Newcastle. What are your thoughts around that potential move? It's interesting in terms of the importance of a sporting director these days. And, um, you know, is somebody of that worth £20 million? Uh, or does the football world move so quickly and players' abilities come and go, injuries happen, young talent moves elsewhere. So the whole canvas that these guys work in changes between a January window and a summer window. It certainly changes over the course of a year. Uh, there's no doubt, though, that some plans that uh, that will be proprietary to Newcastle will now be become, obviously, knowledge of Dan Ashworth if and when he moves to Manchester United after his gardening leave or if the whole thing is resolved. Um, it's it's difficult to know how long, as I say, the, the actual shelf life of information like this is. Uh, from my own experience, it isn't that long. Uh, but certainly it's more about the skills of Ashworth being able to not just spot talent, but also to build the team around in, internally to be able to execute the, uh, the, the use of the talent and how he actually you know, creates that whole uh, feeling within his department, within the club. So, look, it's just like any uh, any player can move. So now it's becoming, uh, you know, sporting directors are getting transfer fees. As I said before, it's going to be KC's next. They're going to be the big one, and they will be the biggest money makers, uh, unfortunately. And uh, footballers will go down the food chain a bit further. <laughs> I guess, yes, and that remains to be seen where, where those figures actually do lie. But we've kind of, you've mentioned there, Keith, £20 million, and actually that, say, 15, 20 years ago, I think most fans would have been absolutely like stunned at that, at that sort of figure. Do you think we could see in a few years like a £50 million sporting director or a £50 million transfer guru? Will that valuation just increase over time? I don't think it will. Um, I think a lot of the artificial intelligence situations that are coming in will reduce the power of the sporting director to a great degree as we see advances in the way that scouting is done through artificial intelligence. Uh, and I think a lot of the personal networks, I mean, before Dan Ashworth, it was really Monchi was the great guy from Seville. And he was considered to be the doyen of uh, the whole sporting director world. And he had the, the golden touch, it seemed, that he was able to uh, to bring in players, Seville, for many, many years, carried on selling them at a huge profit every season. They were doing so well in Europe and in the UEFA Cup. So <coughs> it was um, he was the guy. Dan Ashworth hasn't had that success, although he did a good job at Brighton. Uh, and he's done a good job at Newcastle, there's no doubt. Uh, it's yet to be seen how long those things can carry on. But as I say, he and his like evolved in an era that wasn't quite so data-driven as it is becoming now. Data came to the fore with Michael Edwards and the guys at Liverpool, uh, really, and you know those sort of uh, eras, probably in the last, I would say the last five to six, if not more, slightly more years. But it's being refined to an extent that clubs without the big resources can also now get to that level of data analysis and data information and so I think that may impact the, uh, the the actual importance of a sporting director to a degree, although the personality and somebody who's brilliant in their field will always command, uh, you know, respect and attention. It's going to be easier for other clubs to uh, to combat them on the data side. So you actually think effectively that AI could take over, not say they would take the sporting director's role, but actually they might not say there's not a need for a sporting director, but that role could entirely change because of AI and data. 
Yeah, I think what I'm saying is that Dan Ashworth, and I'm using him as a purely as an example here, or a sporting director of, of that level, one of their great skills is their, their own database that they have developed over the years, their network of knowing scouting, the, the players have analyzed globally at different age groups and in different places. What I'm saying is to be able to create that database is becoming much, much easier. Uh, and so the actual proprietary knowledge is becoming harder to make it unique. And uh, that's where I think the change will come. Talking of Michael Edwards, as we know, Liverpool, of course, are without a sporting director in a few months. And how much do you, would you expect them to pay? You've mentioned Michael Edwards in their former Liverpool sporting director. How much would he be worth in the market? Well, I don't, I don't really want to put prices on uh, on people, but I've, I've seen he doesn't want to come back anywhere at the moment, which is fine. He's got his own. I think he's exactly the sort of person I think is creating a network for many clubs now that they can feed off. So I think he'd be developing the sort of products I'm talking about that many clubs can now feed into is what I'm guessing he may be up to. Um, but it's not really, I think, you know, for, for Liverpool, look, they may get a young, bright guy who wants to see that as a big promotion, in which case there wouldn't be that, you know, these bigger fee. I think this is a really a one-off and it's it smacks of um, Jim Radcliffe, Dave, Dave Brailsford, uh, you know, deciding that's what they wanted and they're going to have to do something to get it. So I think this is more a one-off. I don't see this becoming the regular thing um, in, in years to come for, for the reasons I mentioned. So sporting directors aren't going to become the new Kylian Mbappes of the world, you're saying? I hope not. And uh, I don't think so. I think it, it could be a one-off uh, at this level anyway. Um, but I've been, I've been wrong before, but uh, I don't see it going that way. And apart from data, Keith, do you think that really is the lead reason? Is it actually simply that the world of football is moving from where we were 10, 15 years ago to now? Or could there be are there other underlying factors potentially? Well, I think, look, data is obviously, as we know, is becoming a very important factor. However, I'm not a great believer that data is king. I think that data must always be seasoned with football experience and with personality and with people themselves. I think it's the mix of the two and the intelligent use of data uh, with a personal perspective and personal checking is the way forward. And uh, you know, those that go data only, I think, are, are in for a real problem. Data by its very nature really is only historical. And so you're never really a great predictor of the future. You can make assessments of what's happened with historical data. And that's all data is. You can't predict what the data is going to be for the next game or going forward. You can try and use it to go forward. But uh, that's where I think that um, you need that, still need that personal experience. And I think a, a seasoned football manager with a, you know, who gets on personally with the sporting director is the combination you're looking for. And it's crucial that you have that chemistry between the two of them. If there's any conflict there at all, then you're in trouble. And I think it's wrong to have the sporting director pick the manager. I think that's, I think that's flawed. I think the two of them have got to work together and it should be the owner who understands how to get that correct mix of the two together. I think that's the recipe for success in my view. Are you saying in there as well, Keith, then, that the eye test, as fans know it, is actually really important? Because often you'll hear people talk about XG and unexpected chances and all, all of all of those stats specifically, whereas actually many fans don't necessarily look and actually watch the game. And is, is that effectively what you're implying then? Yes, very much so. I mean, in my when I first started in football, I mean, the old guys in the cloth caps coming to the games who'd go and watch every game within miles at schools and recreation grounds, etc. There's still a place for them in the game. Uh, it's just using them combined with the data and getting their getting their trips to games more accurately uh, pinpointed. I think would be one way I would be using them. Uh, but certainly, you can't beat experience in the game, uh, and I think that is something that is still downplayed. But I think it should be uh, considered further. And if we wrap up, Keith, and talk about Manchester United and Nice, it's similar actually to what we were talking about with multi-club ownership. Now, it sounds like that Man United and Ratcliffe may have to surrender power if United and Nice both qualify for the Champions League. Do you expect, I mean, we discussed it with Girona and Manchester City, do you expect that actually now that Ratcliffe has come in, it's likely that he would pick United over Nice for, for European competition? I think there's no doubt he would. I think I'd be surprised if they haven't already had discussions and making moves to for him to divest Nice. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I think certainly his heart and his uh, business acumen would point towards Man United. So his head and his heart should do that. I think there's going to be bigger projects in terms of the stadium thing that has already been mooted. 
So I think there's no doubt that he would dispose of Nice. Um, and, I, and I'd be surprised if discussions aren't already underway about how that can happen. And it sounds like they will have to meet with a governing body if if both are going to propose to play in Europe, if both do qualify. If they were to go ahead with that and, and argue that both Nice and Manchester United should play in Europe, what would the outcome of that be? Do you expect that UEFA would grant that or is it more likely actually that they would say no? Well, I think they would go on the... Co I think there is a formula that, depending on the coefficient, which Man United would have a much better coefficient in Europe than Nice. I think that would be the uh, the way that the whole thing would be determined as to which club would play. Uh, there is a formula in place, and I think that you know, that would just be adhered to. But uh, I think, as I say, look, Ratcliffe, I, I don't think, would want that headache, and I think he'd, he'd want to uh, divest Nice. I think he's going to also want to keep his main focus on Man United, and despite his, uh, very, should we say, you know, reasonably good resources that he has access to, I think he could do without uh, without the Nice headache. Do you feel, though, for fans that are owned by, I mean, we discussed multi-club ownership, but do you feel for fans that are owned by, you know, that they have multiple ownership involvement and actually that when your club starts to succeed and your ownership then takes charge of what you might regard as a bigger club, you get disregarded? Isn't It, it must be quite a shame for, for fans of those clubs. Well, I mean, I think there's many clubs, I mean, that uh, can be quite happy that they've uh, improved under the, hopefully, the bigger owner. Um, it all depends on the domestic market. I mean, Melbourne Victory, I think, would be an example from the City Football Group, who have done very well um, under the, the City Group and have uh, tasted some some success in relative terms. Um, you know, some of the, 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 the Girona right now, I mean, there's an example that the fans there would, would love that, uh, that the fact they've improved so much. Uh, it's so it's it's a double-edged sword uh so you know look, every football fan wants at least one good season that they can remember uh it's uh, it's difficult to get them so i think if they can just see the club improving in different ways i think most fans would be grateful uh it's part of football that players move on anyway uh regardless of a of a, of a financial grouping so um you know as i say it's it's just part of the game these days and do you think, if you had to predict, say, for the next five or ten years, will multi-club ownership become a norm, or actually will it be a standout for for very few clubs specifically? No, I think it already is the norm. I think I can't remember the exact number, but there's there's close to like eighty different groups already. Will multi-club situations, and I think more and more the growth in America uh, between the, with the USL, which is like the second league in America, uh, will start to play more uh, roles in terms of uh, bringing in lower league clubs. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. The lower league sort of co you know, combinations between different jurisdictions, say America and uh, the UK and Europe. So I think you're going to see more of that where there is no competing competitions that they could be playing in. But there are some back office um, situations that you can try and create synergies in, whether it be accounting, occasional sponsorship deals that can be done, and certainly passing on scouting knowledge and training and sharing facilities in that sort of way, I think, can help all those concerned. Uh, so I think handled in the right way, it should be a positive. Well, that wraps up part one of our podcast with Keith Winers. Now on to part two with Paul Robinson and our special guest, Nicky Hawkins. Nicky, I'm going to come to you. 2-0 loss at the City Ground on the weekend. Your eighth game in 2024 without a win. Fans were there holding up their banner. Moyes out. What are your thoughts? Oh, I'm I'm a West Ham fan, so I'm used to it. First of all, so um, it wasn't great. I mean, you know, I, I came off the back of that six 0 loss to Arsenal, and, and I was saying to uh, to my audience, you know, in podcasts and stuff, you know, there needs to be a reaction. Realistically, there needs to be a reaction. There needs to be, um, you know, a bounce back from that sort of defeat to to get the the season back on track. Otherwise. If we can't, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to struggle to see after, you know, bad results against the likes of Bournemouth, Sheffield United and then Nottingham Forest. I'm, I'm just going to struggle to see where, where the season goes from here, you know, and, and, and whether there's any sort of sustainability in, in, in what we're doing. I'm, I'm baffled by the, I'm not baffled by the result, but I'm baffled by the approach from the manager. I'm going to be honest, I'm baffled by it because... He's set up for four years now. He's, this is four years into his tenure. And you, if, if you have a look at you know what's happening over at Arsenal, um, Arteta's sort of moulded aside into something that he, you know, that that is progressive. Um, 
you know that, that it's got his imprint on it. Um, he's adding players. He's he's you know building a young young squad for the future. And when you look over at what we're doing now, we, you know we, we haven't spent pennies. We've spent a lot of money, um, and we've got an aging squad. It's thin. We've you know it, there's no quality to come off the bench. Um, we're an injury or two for, from you know absolute disaster. And you've got to start to think as a fan, you know, what, what what is the longevity of this? What is the longevity of this side? You know, how do we carry on, um, you know, sustaining this? You know, Paul, you'll know as, a, as you know, a Premier League player, you know, when you start hitting that 29, 30, 31 mark, you know, some, some you know, go before others, but there's very thin lines between, you know, a top quality athlete and someone that can just play in the league. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't, um, it doesn't happen over a period of time. It happens overnight as well. Overnight, that. yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, you, you, you see, I even remember seeing it, you know, from West Ham in the past, you know. A player will go, he'll have a fantastic season, comes back after pre-season, looks a different player, just looks like someone that can fill the numbers. And I think we've got a, a few players that, that are sort of tipping that. So what, what have we, what has he done over four years? Look, he's done a fantastic job. I think he's done a fantastic job in terms of, St- stabilizing the club internally i think he's done a fantastic job in terms of um giving us a sort of a foundation to pay, to, to 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 build upon um because i think he's uh it was a real a real real mess before he got there um i think he's instilled some real good things i think he deserves a lot of respect but when you look at the at these losses now and and the way we're playing i mean we're we're set we're, we're going into these games to, you know set up to defend and we can't defend. You have to be mad to think to yourself, like, well, is that the right approach? You know, you've got to try something different. <coughs> he just doesn't. I just, I, I just find it very, very odd. Uh, Nicky, what's the, in terms of the split, what's the general census among fans? Do you think, because obviously it's quite clear there is a Moyes in and a Moyes out camp. Where as a whole do fans sit on that on that line? I think, uh, I think it changes. I think it changes depending on the run of results. I really do. You know, we are fickle. Fans, you know, we are very fickle um, people. Uh, I think after the City ground loss, I mean, that is the first time I, I remember seeing sort of a stand turn on him. You know, the, the stand was singing, you get sacked in the morning. So you've got to, just based on that, I don't, I mean, a lot of my interactions are on social media. I, I wouldn't take social media as real life, you know. A lot of people that, that are sensible people are not on social media, you know, sensible, well-balanced people. And I know that sounds mad, but they're not, you know, they're the people's opinions, the people that are in the stand that you want to get. And on Saturday, it was, you know, a whole stand singing to me, getting sacked in the morning, which it's got, it's got to tell me that there's, there's, you know, the balance is tipping. I I reckon it's 70, 30 now in, in terms of our, Wow, that's and then that's quite telling to be fair over the last few months. I mean, Paul, do you think David Sullivan is under pressure to sack him or at least to, to really question this this ongoing contract situation? I think he's under pressure to make a decision. And I think the longer it goes, the worse it is. I mean, how many managers go this deep into a contract situation with a contract up at the end of the season? I've been still no word. You know, we've not heard either way. We don't know whether there is a contract, whether they're in discussions, whether there isn't a contract, whether they're not in discussion, whether they're changing the manager or what. I don't think that's healthy for anybody. I mean, you look at what Bayern Munich have done recently to to, to squash speculation about next manager every time they lose Tuchel's job is in question. Now it's not going to be between now and the end of the season because they know he's going at the end of the season. The way that the situation has been handled, the clarity. Listen, we've all got short memories in football and football fans have got a lot of short memories. The West Ham situation, we've talked about this on the pod so many times before. When David Moyes came back for a second time, took that club from a relegation-threatened club to a regular competing top 17 with a European trophy in the cabinet, still competing deep in the Europa League, still competing for a top 7-8 place in the Premier League. You look at that and you question, well, what more do you want? You're not better than the teams above you. Your ceiling is where you're at. But I can then, if you flip that, the other side of it, from, from an outsider looking in, I look at West Ham fans and think, well, they're probably looking at Aston Villa and going, well, look at Unai Emery. There's a different manager. There's a different way of playing. Can we just get to that next level with the players we've got? We've got Kudus. We've got Bowen. We've got these attack, Paqueta. We've got these attacking players. We've got this quality in the team, but it's not being used to its full potential. Can we finish sixth again? Can we finish maybe fifth? Can we challenge top four like Aston Villa, but just do it a different way with a different manager? 
But I think that the disrespect that David Moyes is getting, I don't think has been helped by the lack of clarity around his contract situation. And I think the longer it goes, if he signs a contract now, you are going to get more of a pushback because of the way that the team's playing. I mean, one other big issue is, is obviously Tim Stite and Nicky. I'm sure you'll be fully aware of that and involved. Can you give us any insight into that about the news that circulated with Moyes and Steinton falling out? Because that seems to be another problem as well that's been going on behind the scenes at the club. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it's whether it's right. Um, because I remember similar stories coming out in the summer and, and they look very tight. So I'll take them stories with a pinch of salt. I've got no insight. I mean, I could, I, you know, I, I haven't even tried to find out, to be honest with you, because when the same stories came in, come out in the summer that, you know, that there was at loggerheads over signings and that's why we took so long to get the players in. Um, uh, after a couple of games, they was they was on the touchline cuddling each other. So I can't, I can only take that as a pinch of salt um, that they fell out. But I, I think Tim's, if I'm honest, it, it, I think Tim wants to, you know, to, to, you know, to start a project from afresh with a new manager um, I think he's got the, you know, the, the the players that he wants to bring in, and I think that he's finding it uh, a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit. What's the word I could use? Um, stifling. Um, that the manager's still not been decided on. Um, he does have a certain type of player that he likes to bring in, and I don't think that's the same sort of player that that, that Tim Stylent likes to look at. And I think he might be looking at that with, with, um, you know, the fault of if the club don't make a decision or they make a decision to go that way, maybe it's time for me to go another way. You know, I know that there's rumours about Liverpool uh, possibly sniffing around him. That's a project that you'd want to be involved in Liverpool. You know what I mean? Like, you know, look, the owners, I think everyone's got a problem with the owners to some extent, but you know, it's a bigger and more expansive project than West Ham. So I trust the guy, you know, he, he, he ain't, he doesn't seem like he's got a lot wrong, you know, and he, he, he's the one that instilled, instilled Alonso. He's the one that, um, at Labour Cousin, he's the one that signed sort of Kudus and Alvarez from Ajax. He, he hasn't got a lot wrong so far. So yeah, I, I, listen, I'd, I'd like to keep him and see what he can do. Where does Mark Noble sit, Nicky? Where does he sit in all this? Because obviously, like with a manager, David Moyes is an old school manager, isn't he? And you look at the transfers. I don't suspect David Moyes is the type of manager that's quite happy if he's given players. You know, like Steve Cooper at Nottingham Forest, he's just given a shed load of players and said, yeah. players. You think that Moyes wants an input onto the players he's getting? I think he does, but I, I also think that he I think he's 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 sort of overridden sometimes because of the type of player he does want, you know, he doesn't want yeah. to start to the forward. Um, that's, it's crazy. It's, it's it's absolutely mad that you've got, and like, this is no knock to Mikel, by the way, because I think Mikel's been, you know, Premier League era. I think he's been one of our most um, shrewd signings in terms of what we paid for him and what he's done for the club. But he's 34 years old now. You know, he struggles in natural goal scoring positions and he's the one that you want to play centre forward. And when you look at the, you know, the players he's let go, for half the money that they paid for, Sebastian Haller, look what he's gone on to do in his career. He's playing for Borussia Dortmund, just scored a winner in a, in a you know, in an international final. Um, Skamaka, look, I, I haven't really followed Skamaka, but he was at a decent age, you know, in his in his you know mid twenties. Um, I thought he, he he looked very good on the ball. I think he, you know, th th there's things that Premier League clubs could have done with him. And I spoke to uh, a, an ex-player. Uh, last summer, who played with him last summer, before last summer, and said he was the best player in training. He was absolute quality, and he can't see why he can't get games. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I think I think that of course he's he's going to want to poke his own players, but I think he's got to a point now where you're thinking, right, hold on a minute, can we keep on spending money on these people, um, these players at an age uh, that they are, and letting the players that you know, come in that we, you know, we give to him, let go for our twice. There has to be a, you know, I think there has to be a decision made whether you're going to keep on doing that and following that model, spending the money for the short term or get rid of Moisey and, and go a different direction. Well, if you get rid of Moisey, Nicky, what's the, what's the, I mean, names mentioned Potter, Lopetegui, Cooper. Would you think they're an upgrade or actually are you concerned about some of those names? Um, I don't think I'm concerned. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I I haven't got a name on on the tip of my tongue. I'll be honest with you right now. But 
then again, I'll argue that's not my job. That's not my job to have a name at the tip of my tongue. You know, I'm not the one looking at managers and looking at the best fit. You know, there's so much that goes into joining a football club. It's not just the fact that you click your fingers and someone comes running. You know, there's there's got to be fits. There's got to be family situations. There's got to be, you know, an understanding that, you know, between the, the, the boardroom and, and, and the managerial side, the, the way it's going to run. So it's not as easy as that. I like Potter. You know, I, do you know what? The, the one I would have said before this, and I know that his Spurs tenure wasn't great, but I would have said Nuno. Nuno would have been a good fit because he plays that sort of that style of football. And when you see what he's instilled in Forest in such a small amount of time, you know, when we was going there last Saturday, I said it's ne never going to be an easy place to go to because he they was playing decent football. I think they was just coming up against the wrong position, and he's instilled that sort of attacking. Um, sort of style in, into Forest, and they looked decent. They looked a decent side. They looked a decent side that, you know, although they, they you know, I thought they were solid at the back. I think that, that uh, I think it's Muniel. I think he's superb. But, you know, the likes of Alanga uh, and uh, Hudson-Odoi were, were coming forward and they was, they was free-flowing and they was, you know, they was playing some decent football. They just need to learn to finish. But, yeah, I, I thought he would have been a good fit, but I know Potter's names, you know, his stock's not as high as it was, but I would take him. I would take Graham Potter um, and just see what someone else can do. I, I don't think you should be sort of too worried about who takes over, but we need to see some sort of different football, you know, and, and as long as they can get us playing progressive football and winning, then, you know, it, I, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I've heard Thomas Tuchel's name mentioned lately as well. Well, Jurgen Klopp might be on that list soon as well, actually. But, but in terms of the aims for the season, Nicky, obviously next round of the Europa League, ninth in the table, you're eight points off sixth. What would you say, regardless whether Moyes is there or not, what is a successful season for you now? Is it progressing in the Europa League? Is it aiming for a top seven finish? What would, in your eyes, what would be a success after this year? I still think a top seven. I still think a top seven finish is, is, is what we should be aiming for, really. Maybe eight. I'll even take eight at the minute, you know. Um... Europa League is going to be very difficult because of the teams that are in it, you know. Um, I think we'll do very well against the, the continental teams like we have, but it will be a Brighton or a Liverpool that stifle us. You know, the ones that, that come from home, I think, will you know, will beat us quite comfortably. Um, but, yeah, I think I think just... Uh, I, I'm going to say seventh because we, we will get back into some sort of European competition, and I think that's what you've got to be aiming for at this point. Paul, what are your thoughts? Top seven finish success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, the in the, the time that Moyes has been there, in the four years, you would look back and I don't think there's any West Ham fan that will argue against you that he's not done a good job. And I think it's just got to a point where there's they've, they've reached a ceiling. And do they want to push on through that ceiling with David Moyes or do they want to push on through that ceiling with a different manager and a different style? And I think that the key is for the next appointment for West Ham, there's a huge stigma uh, with West Ham, more so than a lot of other clubs, about the way that they play and about the way that they want to play. You know, you see the way that they play when they're at the bottom of the league and they're struggling defensively. And um, David Moyes has set up this, this season and hugely defensive. I think, was it Bournemouth at home when it was the, a nil-nil game? Probably one of the worst games that I've watched this season when it was an yeah. opportunity for West Ham to push on again. And I think it's just the style of football. I mean, like I said, there's no West Ham fan will argue that David Moyes hasn't done a good job. I mean, Champions of Europe, they still sing that this season and they've got the trophy in the cabinet. So they've gone from a relegation-threatened team to winning the European trophy, competing in Euro Europa League now, going deep into the competition, while still sat ninth in the Premier League with a chance of another European place which I think is about where West Ham are with their budget. But it's just a different way of playing and it's just a different, can we just get that little bit more? And I think that the longer it goes, I think the writing is on the wall for David Moyes, but I think the respect that he, he will take with him, I think if if he stays any longer, it could be a Roy Hodgson situation. You know, one season too many, just that little bit too far. Done a fantastic job. Let's all go our separate ways now. And I think for me, for West Ham, absolutely. Another European finish, seventh, would be... Success, stability, competing in Europe, qualifying for Europe and winning football matches. But it's the way they win football matches. And like I say, the next appointment's key, whether it's Potter, uh, Steve Cooper, the, those type of names for me, you, you look at them and you go, they might do a good job, could do a good job. The one for me that stands out is Lopetegui. If you can get somebody like Lopetegui in a similar vein as Emery, then all of a sudden as a West Ham fan, you go, right, OK, we've got a manager who's got a proper CV. We're going to play a proper style of football and we're going to have a go at this. And then... 
that somebody like that would signify real change for me. And if we if we move on to another club in a managerial search, moving to Liverpool. Now, Xabi Alonso still leads the way in terms of becoming the next manager after Jurgen Klopp's departure in the summer that is inevitable. However, Paul, obviously two shell news, like we mentioned earlier in the pod, buying at the end of the season, he's going. Does that throw a potential spanner in the works, do you think? Well, they've been clever by Munich, haven't they? They've put their hat in the ring straight away. I mean, they've, they've put their cards on the table and they've said, right, we've got a managerial vacancy at the end of the season. They know that they're going to be competing with the likes of Liverpool. I mean, if you were a manager last week, you wouldn't have answered the phone from the chairman. I mean, Sunderland manager lost his job. Marseille manager lost his job. Napoli, Bayern Munich, Klopp. I mean, last, last couple of weeks has been a, a real merry-go-round. And I think we're going to see more of a merry-go-round this summer. And it's just interesting to see who will go where. I've said it a million times before in this pod. I don't want to be the next one that goes into Liverpool. You want to be the one after the next one. Do you want to be the David Moyes after a Sir Alex Ferguson? Do you want to be the Unai Emery after Arsene Wenger? It's it's when you pick up. I mean, this this baton that somebody's going to have to pick up, the relationship that Klopp's got with these Liverpool fans, he's just a perfect fit. You almost, in this generation, if our, of our generation of football fans, you can't really imagine a Liverpool without Jurgen Klopp. So whoever comes in, it's going to have to be one hell of a smooth transition. And it's a tough job. Xavi Alonso is the favourite. But now, obviously, Bayern Munich have become real contenders for him because they've gone, look, we're changing Tuchel at the end of the season. Bayern have got a really good habit and what they do over the years they pick from the Bundesliga. So they they buy players from other teams that have hurt them and that could potentially hurt them and stop them winning league titles. They've been very, very good at that throughout the years. They've looked at other teams and gone, <clears throat> right, we're gonna win, we want to win the league next year. How can we weaken other teams, but also strengthen ourselves? And they've been very good at that. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go in really strongly to get Xavi Alonso. You're bringing a tear to my eye, Paul, but we'll, uh, we'll move on and talk about Robert, Roberto De Servi, Nicky. £10 million release clause at Brighton, potentially the second favourite for the job. Do you think he'd be a suitable candidate? And actually, a bit like Paul was referring to, anyone other than Shabby Alonso, do you think they'd actually walk in and, and, and be successful? Oh, you know, you don't want to be the next one after Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp is a manager of the generation. Uh, uh, we've seen, We've seen... Sort of managers, you know, we've seen Brighton managers go into big club, bigger clubs, and and um, uh, and fail, uh, and you know, be shipped out there pretty quickly. No, look, Disturbi's a good manager. I don't think he's been brilliant with Brighton this season. Like you look at Brighton, you know, Brighton from what you know the way they've been playing football, they've had some bad periods. I don't think he'd last well at Liverpool. You know, there's there's, I don't think he would. I don't. I, I, I've got no basis on that, but I just think to myself, like, I would not be. It's like, you know, if Elton John was performing at, the, at, the, at a concert, you wouldn't want to follow him up. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You know what I mean? It's, it's, Mate, you've it's, not heard me sing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard myself sing, and I definitely wouldn't want to follow him. But, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's such hard um, acts to follow, and, and you normally find that an appointment straight after is not I mean, because everything's so instilled there and everything's so, there's such a lot to do. They don't last long, you know, they're just sort of like, um, you know, placeholders until, until they, they sort the you know, the upstairs out. But yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, but I'd stick with Brighton. I said, you know, I said that, I said that with a few players last year, you know, sometimes that the, you know, players moving from, from smaller clubs to bigger clubs, it doesn't quite work out. And sometimes, some you know, it's worth just waiting, just being patient and seeing what, you know, crafting, you know, uh, just doing it for a little while longer. Like I said, Casado at Chelsea, you know, he should have stayed at Brighton for another year or two before he walked on, 21 years old. Um, it's, it's tough. It's tough when you've got to change everything. And I definitely, you know, Liverpool is an attractive job. But I'd, I'd look at that as a bit of a poison chalice, if, if I'm honest. I mean, Paul, you've got your finger on the pulse at Spurs. Now that Tuchel looks, or oh, he's definitely confirmed to be going, does that concern you with Ange? I mean, he's come out quite a few times, said he, you know, he's staying at Tottenham. There's a project that's going on there. But now that that's happened and it could be Alonso to buy, does that concern you anymore? Yeah, of course it does. I mean, you look at the job that Ange has done this season. Start of the season, what was the realistic expectation? You know, without Harry Kane, you're thinking, right, OK, well, let's see if we can get a European place. But because of the first 10 games, all of a sudden the expectation changes. And then Ange keeps going and the way that they're playing. They've made a lot of friends this year, Tottenham, apart from West Ham, obviously, and Chelsea. <laughs> Actually, I'm, 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 I'm appreciate Tottenham this year. I can't say that many years. They've, they've been a good watch. And, uh, you know, you've got to credit the manager that. He's had one transfer window, he's brought players in, he's, he's added to the squad and he's made, them, he's made them a good team. And you can see the ethos that he's had. 
and the managers had success wherever it's been. I mean, he, what, he won the Asian Cup with Australia. He had uh, success in the in the Far East. He had success north of the border in Scotland. You, you'll argue that none of those are the the equivalent of the Premier League, but all of that is the ladder to where he is now. He's, he's building his CV, and he's coming to Tottenham. People went, oh, not sure. And he's, he's hit the ground running and the style of football and the way that he is. And I think he's endeared himself to the media, the way that he is. And I think you can see the type of guy he is. And if he talks like that in the dressing room to his players, he's open, he's honest. He does it his way. And his stock as a manager has gone through the roof this season. And absolutely, I'm worried about him leaving Tottenham. I mean, who if Tottenham don't get top four this season, there will be a lot of big clubs coming looking at Ange Postacogli. Reeled off a load of clubs there that have changed their manager or sat their manager in recent times. There's not a lot out there. You know, look at the coaches that are out of work. There isn't that many. And you look now, the, the the money that teams have got and the pull of the Champions League is managers want to manage at the top. You saw De Zerbe's interview last week before the Sheffield United game. He was open. He was honest. It was refreshing. He was like, look, I want to manage in my own country at some point. I want to manage in the Champions League. I want to compete in the Champions League while competing for league titles, whether that be in the Premier League, Italy, Spain, Wherever that may be, he was open and honest and said, look, I'm not going to get Brighton forever. I want to be at the top. And that's what managers do in the same way as players. If a player's playing well, he's going to move on to bigger and better things. If Tottenham aren't in the Champions League next year, there'll be a few phone calls coming in for Ange. Don't worry about that. Yeah, and I think that is inevitable. Obviously, he's a he is a top manager and he's proved it this season with Spurs. Obviously, albeit a roller coaster, I think to say the least, but certainly been been a good season nonetheless. Nicky, I want to pick up on a point that you mentioned earlier about the poison chalice at Liverpool in a different way. Do you actually think going to Bayern after this season could be, if you want to call it a poison chalice as well? They're obviously going through quite a difficult period. Xabi Alonso running away with it with Bayer Leverkusen. Do you think actually going there, I wouldn't want to say be a backward step in his career, but actually is Liverpool more suitable going forwards, given that fans actually might give him more time? Or do you think Bayern would be more of a, of a preferred choice? For who, sorry? For, for Xabi Alonso. Xabi. Um, I think, I don't know. Yeah. I, it seems like a perfect... Perfect storm, doesn't it? Like to, he's doing really well. He's just you know ex-player, you know their manager. It, it seems like the, the natural step. But as I say, you know, Chelsea have done it with Lampard. You know they come in. Is that going to be his chance gone? Is it going to be the chance to, you know, to to make an impact long term and you know give be given time to sort of make that project for himself? You know, it, or is it going to be like that stopgap? You know where they you know where they they bring him in. He finds it quite difficult at first and then the, the ball panic and say, all right, well, let's get rid of him and get the next one in. I don't know. I don't know whether it's the right time. Uh, following Klopp is a, is a big ask. Uh, do you know what? I think he may go Bayern, you know. If Bayern come calling, I think he may go Bayern because Bayern is in that country already. They're a big club. Look, apart from this season where he's become the, I think he's become the, the, the fall in their foot. They're pretty much guaranteed for success. Um, They'll win the league again next year. No, no doubt about it in my mind, especially if he leaves. So, yeah, I, I think he could go by him. I think, I think Liverpool, as I said, right club, wrong time. Because I wouldn't want to, you know, I don't think he should be finished. He should be uh, following Klopp. But it depends what Xabi Alonso is, is you know, as a character. You know, he might he might fancy it. He might think no, I ain't seen. You know, Klopp's a great manager. But I back myself and like I see myself like, you know, he, he got a couple of maybe if they win the league this year, he got a couple of titles. I'm gonna go for like that two, three in a row. You know, like you know, changing them into the city. So yeah, listen, I, I think it's gonna be tough um you know, to follow. And I think there's a couple of, you know, players that have been sort of instilled in the Klopp era that, that won't be I think I don't think Salah's gonna be there next year, for instance. Like, you know, so um I think he goes by him. That's a big pick. That's a big point what you make there. I mean, you talk about the Jurgen Klopp here and you, you, we all talk about Klopp moving on with his backroom staff and the impact that's going to have. We all think, you know, when you talk about Klopp, Mo Salah, you look at the, the bid that came in from Saudis, they're not going away. You know, they're not going to go away. We spoke about it loads of times on this podcast and they will come back. And I think for him, an opportunity like that at the end of his career to be like the, the talisman for that league, for the Saudi Pro League, um, they're not going to come back and they're going to pay the same amount of money for him. So a Liverpool next season may look very, very different for as good as they are now. Listen, the night and day compared to what they were last year. So Bosley for me is one of the signings of the season. With Jotty, looks like he's going to be out for most of the season though. Yeah. Diaz, Nunes, Salah, 
the way that he's rejuvenated that side, the youth that's come into that side this season, it looked like it had put a little bit of fire back in Jurgen Klopp's belly. And it looked like, oh, we've got a young side here. We're, we're going to go again. I was surprised as anyone when, when he when he said that he's he's leaving. So the squads, the teams at a good age, the young players coming through. But without Klopp, potentially, we don't know, Van Dijk, is he coming to the end? Alisson, will he move on? Without Salah, you take those three key players, components out of that and the manager, then all of a sudden it's not just a new managerial job. There's a little bit of an overhaul, and I can see you squirming in your chair sat there, like Liverpool fan. <laughs> what do you think? Go on. What do you think? You're as well educated on this as us. What do you think with it all? Where do you? Who would you like as your next manager? Um, and what do you see? It's uh, where I stand is that I think Liverpool fans will give the next manager time. I think it would oh, be yeah, it would be, yeah it would be wrong to get in shabby Robert Roberto De Zerbi, whoever and turn around in, in six to twelve months and go no he, he's not the man to have in. I think the truth is though. I remember sitting in a wagamama in October 2015, and Jurgen Klopp was appointed. And I, and I, nobody ever. <laughs> yeah, you were, and and Jurgen Klopp came in, and I thought, Do you know what, this actually might be quite a shrewd, shrewd appointment. What, he came and into wagamama. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Joined Liverpool, and if you look at the truth, is I don't think ever in my lifetime I will see a better manager. And when I talk to parents, grandparents, whoever who grew up in in the 80s, 90s, 70s when Liverpool were dominating. <laughs> This is the era that I dreamed about growing up. And this is the era that, that actually I've been able to experience. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to say that, that I've lived through the Jurgen Klopp era and seen the success that we've had from a club that really was, it was a, a sell-to-buy club and now who are really one of the best teams in the world. I think the truth is, the only way that you soften the blow of Jurgen Klopp is Xabi Alonso. There is no other answer. Any other manager that comes in, the only manager, Paul, that I would say that I think I would go, do you know what, actually, there's something about him that I love. And, and, and Australian links aside, is Ange Postacoglu. I think Ange coming in brings in an element that he is so honest, he's raw, and he's just, in, in essence, he is like Klopp. They are two honest characters. And they're I think the two names, yeah. aren't they? They're the two names that I think most Liverpool fans, they're the only two names that stop you going, oh, OK, let's see how it goes. Yeah. And I think anyone else other than that, I'm yeah. kind of, you know, I think you see it as a rebuild and next season is effectively, you know, you sort of smile and, and grit your teeth through it and then you go from there. But I think Nicky's right. I think that anyone other than Shabby or Ange would really, you kind of look at and I'm, I'm not thrilled by the prospect in truth. I'm not. That was absolutely brilliant. So much gossip and exclusive news across a range of subjects today. Thanks very much to Keith Winers, Paul Robinson and Nicky Hawkins for their expert analysis and detail on all the stories covering so many clubs. If you have enjoyed this podcast episode, please give it a share on social media wherever you can. And any clips you see on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and a comment as well as subscribing to the channel. I'm Lewis Pears, and we'll speak to you all on the next show here on the Inside Track.